The Atlanta Journal-Constitution is taking Georgia political coverage to the next level. Now, Georgia's smartest political team is adding Hall of Fame political broadcaster Bill Nygut. I am beyond thrilled to be joining the remarkable political team at the AJC. And with the year that we have unfolding in politics, it's going to be an exciting ride. Read Bill Nygut's expert insight on AJC.com and listen to the Politically Georgia podcast with me, Greg Bluestein, And me, Patricia Murphy. And me, Tia Mitchell. Hear new episodes every weekday. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. The celebration. The Atlanta Journal Constitution presents. Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip hop. You're listening to Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to AJC.com news breakdown. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our reporters and ask questions about our story. Previously... On breakdown. These are all the issues that need to be determined and that we believe will be in the minds of the jurors. What was going on that day? Why was it going on? And what was everyone's intent? What was the motivation of these people? These people being Mr. Arbery and the McMichaels. I had, you know, my weapon out the window, training on him, you know, begging him, just yelling, stop, stop, stop. And as he ran, he slowed down, he made eye contact with me. He began to pat his waistband. And when he did that, what were your thoughts? Lord, please don't let me have to shoot this man. They said that the motivation of the victim is the central issue in this case. Your Honor, they have put us on notice that this is a self-defense case. First off, in a self-defense case, you cannot start it if you're the first aggressor you cannot go ahead and murder somebody. You can't claim self-defense if you started it. Welcome back to Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm joined by my colleague, Asia Burns, a breaking news reporter for the AJC. We're covering the February 23, 2020 fatal shooting of Ahmaud Arbery just outside of coastal Brunswick. A lot has happened since our last episode. We now have a fourth defendant who's been indicted in the Arbery case. Judge Timothy Wamsley issued a key ruling as to whether the defense can introduce evidence of Arbery's past at trial. We had a pretrial hearing, and as the trial date approaches, Glynn County is about as bad as any county in the country in terms of COVID-19 transmissions and infections. About that fourth defendant. It doesn't involve the actual murder case against Travis McMichael, his father Greg McMichael, and Roddy Bryan. On September 2nd, a Glenn County grand jury indicted former District Attorney Jackie Johnson on two criminal counts, 
Together, they carry a maximum punishment of six years in prison. We knew the grand jury had been investigating her actions in the Arbery case. But I must say, I was surprised Johnson was indicted. I mean, DAs hardly ever get indicted. Except in Georgia. Well, actually, that's right, Asia. Just this year, two other sitting DAs in Georgia have been indicted for bribery and other charges. And their cases are also still pending. I know. Georgia. As we previously told you, Johnson was voted out of office last November in large part because of the way she mishandled the Arbery investigation. Her indictment was, as you can well imagine, big news. Yesterday was a very huge win. Um, I'm, I'm speechless, you know. Unfortunately, Ahmad is not here with us today, but Ahmad, me losing Ahmad, it, it, it will change some things in the, here in the state of Georgia. And I'm just very thankful. I appreciate all the hard work. That's Ahmad's mom, Wanda Cooper. She appeared with Ahmad's dad and the family's two lawyers at a virtual press conference after the indictment was handed up. Here's Ahmad's father, Marcus Arbery. I'm just so grateful because, you know, everybody that had their hand on his death need to be brought to justice. And the system's showing that. The federal system's showing that. Marcus Arbery said Johnson, the McMichaels, and Brian should be made examples of. Make the next one thing. When you yes. see a black kid running down the street, don't grab guns yes. and run behind them like they're animals. What gives you the nerve to think you can do that? That's a nerve that somebody in that justice system made you think you can do that. I don't hunt human beings down. What makes you thought you can hunt my kid down and shoot him down the street like that? You had to have the justice system behind you to do that. You had some nerve. You thought you were going to get away with it. Cover when you got the justice system corrupt. That's a cover. You thought you were bombing above the law. But guess what? Y'all got it. One of the civil rights attorneys, Ben Crump, called the indictment a landmark decision by the Glenn County Grand Jury. He also said this. The path to justice for Ahmaud Arbery and his family has been a long and arduous one. But the indictment is yet another step in the right direction. Former DA Johnson may not have pulled the trigger on the day Ahmaud was murdered, but she played a starring role in the cover-up. Ahmaud was stopped, gunned down, and his killers were allowed to freely walk the streets for months. And why? Because D.A. Johnson wanted to protect one of Amaya's killers, former police officer Gregory McMichael. Johnson turned herself in to the Glen County Jail on September 8th. She was released on her own recognizance. You can see her booking photo on our Breakdown Facebook page. Let's take a look at each of the two counts. Count one is a felony with a maximum punishment of five years in prison. Johnson is charged with violating the oath of office she took after she was appointed DA in August 2010. She pledged, in part, I will faithfully and impartially and without fear, favor, or affection discharge my duties as district attorney. On the day Ahmad was shot and killed, the indictment said, Johnson showed, quote, favor and affection to Greg McMichael, unquote. She also failed, quote, 
to treat Ahmad Arbery and his family fairly and with dignity, unquote. She also allegedly violated her oath of office with the way she handled her recusal from the case, because Greg McMichael once worked for her as an investigator in the DA's office. The day of the killing, Johnson called District Attorney George Barnhill from the neighboring Waycross Judicial Circuit. He would drive down to Brunswick, review the evidence, and determine that McMichaels committed no crime when they set off chasing Ahmad through their neighborhood. Only a few days later did Johnson officially disqualify herself from the case. And she didn't disclose that Barnhill had already been working on it. And Barnhill, when accepting the job, did not disclose to the AG's office that his son worked as a prosecutor for Johnson and had previously worked with Greg McMichael. What a mess, right? And just to remind you, Barnhill later disqualified himself after Wanda Cooper publicly complained about his own conflicts of interest. And, of course, upon withdrawing from the case, Barnhill wrote the widely criticized letter that said Travis, Greg, and Roddy were making a lawful citizen's arrest and that Travis was acting in self-defense. I know this is a lot of background, but it's important context. Let's look at count two. It's pretty straightforward. It's a misdemeanor, and it accuses Johnson of obstruction and hindering a law enforcement officer. This allegedly occurred on the day of the shooting when she, quote, knowingly and willfully, unquote, told two Glen County police officers not to place Travis McMichael under arrest. At their press conference, Wanda Cooper and Marcus Arbery praised Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr for his office's work. They said Carr kept in close contact with them as the grand jury did its work. It's important to note that when announcing the indictment, Carr said the investigation is ongoing. Some wonder if Barnhill may be next. Here's attorney Lee Merritt, who also spoke at the press conference. Jackie Johnson was indicted in part for violating the duties of her office. Uh, George Barnhill withheld material information, first namely that Jackie Johnson came to him and consulted with him about the case of Ahmaud Arbery from day one, that they enjoyed a close personal relationship, uh, and that he began to advise her about ways her friend and former employee, uh, Gregory McMichael, could avoid accountability along with his family. Uh, the behavior of Jackie Johnson and George Barnhill in this case was shocking to the conscience. It was offensive to our office. It was offensive to the community. And here's Ben Crump again. That local district attorney is often the last chance for a family having a, a voice, having a, a their day in court. Jackie Johnson intended on making sure that Ahmaud Arbery's family never would have their voice heard in court. Thank God the people stood up. Thank God the court of public opinion influenced the court of law to say, no more, no more will we allow you to sweep our children's death under the rug. Ahmad Arby life mattered. And that's what I read when I read that indictment where they expressly state she showed favor and affection for the killers. Not everyone applauded the indictment. I talked to a number of criminal defense lawyers in the day after it became public. Some were critical of it. So, we turned to Breakdown's resident legal expert, Don Samuel. Guess what? He felt the same way. I don't even think it alleges a crime at all. I mean, it is just not even close, in my opinion, 
to uh, alleging a crime against uh, Jackie Johnson in this case. Um, I, I, I'm just shocked that the Attorney General would think that this indictment even comes close to being a uh, legitimate indictment against a, a district attorney. Interestingly, Samuel once defended Johnson's father, Zach Johnson, when he was a bank president in southeast Georgia. He was charged with an agricultural fraud case in 1986. The allegations were that the government paid out fraudulent claims to farmers who underreported their crop production. Zach Johnson was acquitted of all counts, and Samuel remembers seeing Johnson's teenage daughter, Jackie, when he went to their home way back then. Samuel said he later defended two high-profile cases against Johnson when she was DA, and he had run-ins with her on one of those cases. Still, he doesn't buy the indictment against her. You know, there are two counts to this indictment. One of them, you know, almost almost comes close to saying she's discourteous. And for that reason, you know, we're going to uh, indict her as violating her oath of office for, um, you know, to, to think that that's a felony in Georgia for either a DA or anybody else to, um, to not treat someone with respect um, is really just a shocking uh, departure from standard <laughs> criminal law. Um, and it, it is just beyond belief that the DA would bring an indictment like that. Um, you know, to treat someone fairly and with dignity or to fail to treat someone fairly and with dignity is a crime that can put you in jail for five years? Oh, my Lord. He was even more critical about the count that said she had told two police officers not to arrest Travis. I will never waver from the position that a DA who um, uses caution and says, I want to finish the investigation before I make arrests um, is, in fact, doing her job, not committing a felony in Georgia. The AJC tried repeatedly to reach Jackie Johnson, but she never returned our calls or texts. Her lawyer, John Osick, did. He declined to comment. If you remember from a previous episode, Johnson gave an interview last year to local radio station WIFO and denied any wrongdoing in how she handled the case. There's a firestorm and, you know, a lie, you know, makes it around the world a couple of times before the truth gets the chance to get out there. And all I can rely on is, you know, the people that know me and know that I wouldn't do something uh, of this of this magnitude. I mean, I, 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 I'm just, uh, you know, I, all I can, I don't fear the truth. You know, I, I don't fear the truth. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that this is investigated, investigated by the attorney general, by the Department of Justice, and they can see what I did and see what we were doing was just trying to make the best decisions that, as we could at the time. And, and, and we were not trying to do, do anything to manipulate this case. Rather, we were trying to stay out of this case. She also addressed accusations made by two Glynn County commissioners. They said they had been told Johnson instructed the police to make no arrests on the day Ahmad was shot and killed. Absolutely not true. I was watching uh, television Friday night and I saw my face flash up there and then I saw that quote and I was just horrified because that's so far from, from the truth. It's just a straight up lie. She also said she did not recommend to the AG's office that Barnhill be appointed. And when asked why she called on Barnhill in the first place, even though his son worked for her, Johnson said she was just trying to get help to the police as quickly as she could. Um, the one mistake I made in this case, again, was trying to be helpful to the police because I knew it was a serious situation and, and somebody needed to make a decision about what needed to happen. We couldn't be involved. And so I offered to try to get help from a neighboring circuit. 
So, there was that development, and there was another big one in the murder case. On August 30th, Judge Timothy Walmsley ruled defense attorneys representing Greg, Travis, and Roddy cannot present evidence at trial of Ahmad's past run-ins with the law. That's a huge win for the prosecution. Absolutely. As we've said, the defense contends their clients were justified in chasing Ahmad through the Satilla Shores neighborhood because they were making a valid citizen's arrest. In court motions, the defense cited 10 prior bad acts committed by Ahmad from 2013 to the weeks leading up to his killing. These included Ahmad pleading guilty to carrying a handgun on high school grounds and pleading guilty to shoplifting for trying to take a TV from a Walmart. There were other run-ins he had with police, such as a confrontation in the park with Officer Canego. The defense contended this would help buttress their contention Ahmad was committing a burglary on the day he was killed, not jogging down the street. Even so, don't forget that Ahmad had no stolen items on him when he was killed. Judge Walmsley said the defense was trying to get bad character evidence before the jury. That would be unfairly prejudicial. He wrote, The character of the victim is neither relevant nor admissible in a murder trial. In a prior episode, Samuel had predicted this would happen. He said he couldn't see how this evidence could come in. We sent him a copy of the decision. Here he is explaining why Walmsley came down the way he did. The, the prevailing law in Georgia, you know, as we've previously discussed, is that evidence about the victim's past conduct is not admissible unless it somehow is probative of the defendant's state of mind. So if I know that Bill Rankin has shot a lot of people and that every time Bill Rankin gets upset with someone, he shoots them, and I have a confrontation with Bill Rankin, I can put in evidence about his prior shootings. Why? Because it legitimately informed my fear of him. But if I don't know anything about his background, and I don't know anything about what he's ever done, why is it relevant to my guilt or innocence? If my defense is self-defense, what Bill Rankin did last month is entirely irrelevant if I didn't know about it, because it simply could not have been a component of my state of mind uh, or some reason why I was in fear of him. What, what put me in fear of the victim is what I observed that day and what I knew about him, uh, about his past conduct. Those are legitimate reasons why I was in fear and needed to act in self-defense. But if I didn't know about it and I didn't observe it, it couldn't possibly be relevant to my state of mind. Just to let you know, I do not have a propensity to shoot people I get angry with. I don't even own a gun. The defense was naturally disappointed with Wamsley's decision. One of Travis's lawyers, Jason Sheffield, who argued the motion, gave us a statement. He noted that Ahmad had a history of thefts, obstruction, and entering into homes and businesses. Sheffield said, quote, Why the judge would now decide that all of his prior motives, his intent, his plan to do these things is not relevant in this case is baffling, unquote. Sheffield said the jury that's ultimately picked for the case will want to know why Ahmad was in the neighborhood that day, what he was doing, and why he ran from Greg and Travis when they tried to question him. He said, quote, now they will be denied the truth. Well, Sheffield's comments didn't sit well with the Cobb DA's office, which is prosecuting the case. In a court motion filed September 3rd, prosecutors asked Walmsley to order the defense to stop making what's called extrajudicial statements such as 
talking about facts or evidence in the case. Commenting on court proceedings. And giving their take on court rulings. The prosecution pretty much seems to be asking the judge to issue a gag order. Of course, we don't want that. In its motion, the state said it was surprised it had to make such a request. But criticizing judicial rulings and claiming they will deny the jury the truth, quote, has caused the state grave concern, unquote. The motion cited our story and even provided a link to it. We appreciate that. Yes, we do. But the state said it is concerned that similar public statements going forward will have a substantial likelihood to prejudice the trial. Wamsley had yet to address the motion by the time we recorded this episode. He had also yet to rule on the defense's motion to admit evidence about Ahmad's mental health at trial. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. There was also a pretrial hearing in late July we need to tell you about. It was pretty illuminating as to what the pressure points will be at trial, which is still scheduled to be held October 18th. It also revealed some of the concerns the prosecution has, and it also showed a good bit of the defense's plans when the case gets before a jury. But let's first talk about a motion jointly filed by the McMichaels lawyers. It was worrisome, that's for sure. It was titled... Motion for Specific Procedures Necessary to Ensure the Selection of a Fair and Impartial Jury. What caught our attention was its request to bar the news media from the courtroom when prospective jurors are questioned individually by the lawyers. This would be during voir dire, the jury selection process. More specifically, it's called individual sequestered voir dire, meaning one juror is questioned outside the presence of the other jurors. In this high-profile case, the plan is for the potential jurors to first fill out a questionnaire. Then, they'll be brought into the courtroom in batches and asked general questions as a group. At some point, one juror after another will enter the courtroom, sit alone in the jury box, and be questioned. With all eyes in the courtroom on them, most will be uncomfortable, to say the least. In this case, they will be questioned about their views on race, the police, and other delicate issues. It's also during this process where you can see which potential jurors already have a bias one way or the other, whether they've pretty much made up their minds on guilt or innocence. And when one juror tilts one way or the other toward the defense or prosecution, lawyers from the opposing side will do all they can to rehabilitate that juror. If you've listened to prior seasons of Breakdown, you know this is a critical part of a trial. So it's hard to imagine being a journalist who shut out of this part of the trial. That's one way to put it. It's never happened to me before. At the hearing, Laura Hogue, one of Greg McMichael's lawyers, explained to Walmsley why the defense was making such an unusual request. In short, what we are asking is not to close the press from the voir dire process entirely, but to do what is often done in cases in which individual sequestered voir dire is necessary. By the very nature of individual sequestered voir dire, we're asking questions that are sensitive, that 
a potential juror may be afraid to reveal an open court, and more importantly, issues that go to the heart of this case that require complete candor. As the court is aware, this case has received overwhelming attention. Your Honor, you and I have had a situation where witnesses who were planning to appear were just too frightened to do so. And witnesses who did appear, but then were land blasted on social media afterwards, have absolutely announced they will never come back in here again. For that reason, we have evidence of concrete threats. The state provided us evidence of voicemails that were left for the Michaels. I will state in my place and for all counsel here, there is hardly a week that goes by that we don't receive toe-curling emails or voicemails. Because the nature of this case and the international attention it's received is so emotionally charged. She also said that while the press won't be present, a court reporter will still take down everything that's said. Then we hear what I've had the good fortune to hear for the many years I've worked as a court reporter for the AJC. Your Honor, my name is Tom Clyde. I'm here on behalf of the media interviewer. Tom Clyde to the rescue. I'm proud to say he's the AJC's lawyer. My lawyer. He's fantastic. Two days before the hearing, after seeing the defense request, Tom filed a motion asking that the media be allowed to intervene in the case. He filed it on behalf of the AJC, CNN, the Associated Press, USA Today, Court TV, and TV and radio stations in Atlanta and Jacksonville. Seated in the courtroom gallery, Tom rose and addressed the court. Your Honor, I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with the court today. I felt it prudent to file our motion as quickly as possible because we do very much object to the closure of the voir dire process, the individual part voir dire process on a systematic basis. We think that's in conflict with well-established constitutional law. Uh, overall, we acknowledge that this is absolutely, this is a very important case, that this is, there's a great deal of public interest. And for that reason, we believe openness in the jury selection process to the maximum degree possible is a very important step for the court to take. Thanks largely to Tom, this has a happy ending. Yes, indeed. During a mid-morning recess, he talked to the defense attorneys who had been worried that members of the public would identify prospective jurors. Worried that people listening to the proceedings would recognize their voices. Right. The lawyers already knew the press is prohibited from photographing or videotaping jurors. What they were not aware of was a rule passed a few years ago that prohibits making audio recordings of the jury selection process. Of course, we don't like this rule barring audio recordings. Not one bit. Like I've said, you'd be amazed by what some people say in a courtroom. But once the defense was made aware of the new rule and the fact that an uneasy juror can ask to speak in private with the lawyers and the judge, the defense softened its position. Laura Hogue disclosed it after meeting with Tom Clyde during the morning recess and then having a private meeting with the judge in prosecution during the lunch break. She refers to Georgia's Rule 22, which governs the use of electronic devices in courtrooms and the recording of judicial proceedings. Uh, I have a better understanding now of their objection. I have a better understanding of where Rule 22 will protect us 
from many of the things I was concerned about, but I would like to uh, be able to continue to work with uh, Mr. Clyde and make a suggestion to the court, hopefully as joint of a suggestion as possible, about how we would handle a juror who feels it necessary to have the press removed from the room in order to answer a question with full candor. That's the, that is really what we're all the way down to. I agree that I, I am withdrawing the notion that the press should be excluded from all individuals sequestered for a year because of the way we've now changed the notion of individual sequestered voir dire and the order and the logistics, the funneling method. Like I said, Tom Clyde to the rescue. Judge Wormsley even noted that there are limitations on what judges can do when it comes to closing a courtroom. It's a significant hurdle to clear, he said. At the hearing, Judge Wamsley also heard motions in limine filed by the prosecution and defense. Those are motions in which the judge is asked to rule, before the trial, that certain evidence is inadmissible and can't be introduced or even referred to. It's what one side expects the other to do, so it tries hard to head them off at the pass. Exactly. As you know, much of this case hinges on Georgia's old citizen's arrest law. It says, if a private citizen sees someone fleeing a scene and that they had reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion that person had committed a felony, the citizen can detain that person until police arrives. That phrase is so important in this case. Reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion. Such is why the prosecution filed this motion. Here's lead prosecutor Linda Donikoski. One of the Travis McMichael consistent themes that Mr. Rubin has used repeatedly um, here in court and elsewhere has been that Satilla Shores was a neighborhood on edge, um, as if this feeling of there's all this crime out there and therefore somebody's got to do something about it um, justifies the defendant's behavior. And the state's objection to this theme is that there's no evidence whatsoever to support it. Uh, Agent Dial came in at the preliminary hearing and said between July 1st of 2019 and the time of the homicide, there were only about 107 911 calls. That sounds like a lot, but about 34 of them were, can you do extra patrols, please? Um, meaning this neighborhood wanted special attention from the Glen County Police Department. Uh, a number of them were suspicious persons, but not one of them were a forcible felony. There was a burglary 911 call that turned out to be nothing, a roommate disagreement, and two entering autos, one of which was for Travis McMichael's truck on January 1st of 2020. So this theme that they've got going on is completely unsupported by the evidence, and without, how about this? There's just no way to have a neighborhood testify that it was on edge or a neighborhood had a feeling. And this sort of drumbeat that um, the neighborhood feeling justified a witch hunt uh, would be inappropriate. Defense attorney Laura Hogue disagreed. Well, I don't think the state can object to the themes and the emotions and the theories that we develop. If we're wrong, we'll live with that. But the fact that we have the opportunity to present evidence in support of any theme and any theory that we choose 
is simply the law. So if we were to argue an inference in closing based on evidence that we do intend to present that comes directly from the state's evidence, then we have an opportunity to do that. And the state saying that we can't and shouldn't be able to do that is inappropriate. It will not be hearsay, Your Honor, for witnesses to testify about posting things on a Satilla Shore Facebook page or reading things on a Satilla Shore Facebook page that affect their perception about the danger in their neighborhood. Right or wrong, it's just simply not hearsay. And it is relevant when the state has accused and indicted these men of malice murder. Malice murder. The notion that they intended the consequences of their act, and I suspect the state will argue as early on as when they left the home that day. So we ask the court to deny this motion. Roddy's lawyer, Kevin Goff, also disagreed. Your Honor, I think it's certainly, if nothing else, premature. But I'm disturbed by the Orwellian nature of this argument, generally speaking. The state, on the one hand, tries to tell Your Honor that there's no evidence there. And then at the same time, then they acknowledge in the next breath that neighbors wanted additional police protection. Why would neighbors be calling for additional police protection if they didn't think they had a crime problem in the neighborhood? I mean, the argument is self-defeating. But specifically with respect to Mr. Bryan, again, the state mischaracterizes what the evidence is in this case. I believe the totality of the evidence, as opposed to one isolated statement harped upon, is that Mr. Bryan was, in fact, aware of crime in the neighborhood. He didn't see it. He might not have been on social media, but he heard about it at work, up the street, because everybody talked about it. And he talked about it in his statement. So that's not really a big stretch. Judge Walmsley denied the prosecution's motion. Then he said this, quite pointedly. This case, as we've said a number of times, just being the nature of the case and what's been going on in this courtroom, and I'm not pointing fingers here, but some of what has gone on in this courtroom over the last year or so has been arguments directed at the court that may be tailored at other audiences. And that may have to do with themes and how we want to describe it. When we try this case, we're going to be presenting evidence, and we'll have an argument based on that evidence. And if the argument is not supported by the evidence, then it becomes objectionable. Walmsley also said this. While he wasn't going to prohibit the defense from arguing that Satilla Shores was the neighborhood on edge, if the evidence doesn't support it, it's a dangerous road to go down. Donikoski also asked the judge to prohibit the defense from questioning witnesses whether Ahmad had committed a burglary or a criminal trespass, or that he tried to carjack Roddy's truck when he was chased through the neighborhood. Now, I want to be real clear. I'm not talking about argument here. I'm talking about asking witnesses on the stand cross-examination questions that are inappropriate, such as Agent Dial. From what you could tell, Mr. Bryant really was experiencing a carjacking. Isn't that right? Would be an inappropriate question to ask the GBI agent based on what Mr. Bryant had told the GBI agent. Because Mr. Bryant, by the way, never uses the word carjacking or hijacking at all in any of his statements whatsoever. And that is because a lot of these statements from a lot of these witnesses 
and from the defendants themselves say things like, I'll give you an example, the defendants themselves go, he's the guy who's been burglarizing these houses in this neighborhood. Well, is he the guy who's been burglarizing these houses in this neighborhood? Is that your belief? Is there any evidence that that's the fact? Is that true? But to say, this is the guy who's been burglarizing these houses, when there's absolutely no evidence he actually ever took anything, Larry English is going to testify, he never took anything or damaged any property inside 220 Satilla Drive, it would be improper to elicit this type of opinion testimony or legal conclusion by any witness. Dunikowski asked Wamsley, once the jury is seated, to give them instructions on the law before opening statements and testimony begin. She said to tell the jury the legal definitions of burglary and criminal trespass. How Bob Rubin, one of Travis's lawyers, responded seemed to reveal what may happen at trial. Obviously, the motion seems to ask us, or ask the court to order us not to ask leading questions. Fine, that's on, they're on direct exam. We should be asking open-ended questions. But to uh, limit the use of some of these terms, like I said, some of these legal terms actually have to be interpreted by the defendants, Mr. McMichaels, at the time of the incident because they're effectuating an arrest by a private person. So they have to go through a mental map uh, on some of these, not all of them, but some of these topics. I think it would be appropriate for them to testify to what they believe at the time uh, they took actions. You heard that, right? It would be appropriate for them to testify to what they believed at the time they took actions. He sure made it sound like the McMichaels are going to take the stand and testify in their defense. Kevin Goff told Walmsley he didn't object to the judge giving the jury the definitions of burglary and criminal trespass, but he told the judge he should also give definitions of a potpourri of other offenses, including carjacking. How about this one? Motor vehicle theft and criminal attempt to commit motor vehicle theft along with criminal attempt to commit burglary. How about robbery by force? Criminal attempt to commit robbery by force. Entering an auto. Criminal attempt to commit entering an auto. How about kidnapping and false imprisonment? Then Goff makes note of the palm print found on the door of Roddy's truck, as well as cloth fibers found there. This shows Ahmad was trying to get inside Roddy's truck, Goff contended. Whether he intends to take the vehicle, push Mr. Bryan out, whether he intends to beat him up or kidnap him or bury him in the woods, we don't know. But a jury can infer reasonably that Mr. Arbery was attempting to commit a felony. Now, my position is the physical evidence in this case alone, the physical evidence alone, not the testimony of any defense, that evidence alone is going to justify a charge on carjacking, or a charge, rather, that Mr. Arbery had committed a felony in the immediate presence of Gregory Travis McMichael and Rodney Bryant, authorizing them at that point to conduct the citizen's arrest for those crimes or attempted crimes, independent of what happened at the English residence. Remember what we've said. While Greg saw Ahmad running from the English house and then told Travis he'd seen that, all Roddy saw was two white guys in a pickup truck chasing after a black man running down the road. Doesn't sound like reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion for Roddy to believe Ahmad had committed a felony. Now, Goff is using this alleged confrontation during the chase as a basis for all three men to make a citizen's arrest. In the end, Wamsley said he was not going to enter a blanket order prohibiting witnesses from using certain words. If it gets to the point some words are being overused, he said he'll take objections to them. 
Goff then told the judge he thinks the prosecution may bring up novel arguments that contend Ahmad was justified in assaulting Travis and justified in trying to take Roddy's car. If the state's going to contend that Mr. Arbery was justified in stealing Mr. Bryant's car or justified in yanking him out and throwing him on the side of the road or justified in kidnapping or false imprisoning him or justified in carjacking in the second degree, if they're going to contend that you can legally be justified in committing various property crimes under these circumstances, I think that's something we probably need to flesh out before we start trying to get Donikowski had heard enough. Your Honor, allow me to be crystal clear. The defendant, Mr. Bryan, hit Mr. Arbery with his truck. That's why his palm print's on it. That's why his t-shirt fibers are on it. Because he assaulted him with a 5,000-pound lethal weapon known as a pickup truck. And yes, maybe Mr. Arbery did try and push off that truck after being hit with it. I get that the defense wants to characterize that some other way, as if Mr. Arbery was committing a crime after being assaulted with a 5,000-pound pickup truck, a lethal weapon that could have killed him, as Mr. Bryan pushed him off the road and into a ditch, which he, by the way, demonstrated to Agent Seacrest in his March 13, 2020 video. It's offensive that this has been turned into the victim was trying to commit a carjacking. No, the state is not going to argue that he was entitled to commit a carjacking because Mr. Arbery was not committing a carjacking. He was not committing any felony. Mr. Arbery was trying to save his life from that man who was trying to hit him with a pickup truck. Thank you. Yeah, this is going to be a battle royale inside the courtroom. And, like we said, jury selection is set to begin on October 18th. But we still have to wait and see if that will really happen. That's because COVID-19 could still throw a wrench into the schedule for the trials related to Ahmad's death. But so far, the trial is still on for October 18th. Judge Walmsley and the lawyers recently held a status conference and decided to go forward. Unless things get a lot worse in Glen County. In the coming weeks, there will likely be a lot of talk about how safe it is to hold a trial in Glen County, where the virus has been surging out of control. It's terrible down there. In Brunswick, they had to place a mobile morgue outside the local hospital to house the overflow dead. National Guard troops were sent there to help an overwhelmed medical staff. The circuit's chief judge shut down jury trials for a month. The school system went virtual. Glen County has been ravaged by the confluence of the highly contagious Delta variant, with only 45% of the county being fully vaccinated. And by the way, Glen County's rate of having 45% of its residents fully vaccinated matches the rate for the entire state of Georgia. It's so distressing and frustrating. So far, 252 people have died from COVID in Glen County. That includes 29 deaths in just the past two weeks. The Georgia Department of Public Health considers a rate of 100 cases per 100,000 citizens over a two-week period to be high community spread. In Glen County, as of September 14th, the rate of confirmed and suspected cases was almost 1,700 per 100,000 residents. That's 17 times what the health department considers a high rate. Those are staggering numbers. 
although it's important to note that Glenn County's COVID-19 numbers have been steadily dropping of late. Like we said, in early September, it was among the worst counties for COVID-19 transmission and infections in the country at 2,900 new or suspected cases per 100,000 residents. COVID-19 concerns aside, don't forget that Travis, Greg, and Roddy have been held without bond since they were arrested in the spring of 2020. They've been waiting a long time for their day in court, and they want it. They don't want to delay. That very likely factored into Wamsley's decision to go forward. And there was one more thing to consider. Federal Judge Lisa Godby-Wood, who is presiding over the federal hate crimes case against Travis, Greg, and Roddy, has set a trial date in that case for February the 7th. The lawyers in the state murder case have made it clear they want to try their case before the federal case. The key players in the Ahmad Arbery murder trial are believed to be fully vaccinated, but pulling a jury together could still be difficult. Here's Don Samuel again. We can we can keep the courtrooms socially distanced, people inside the courtrooms. We can put up enough plexiglass if that doesn't make matters worse, though, they're now saying because it disrupts the airflow. Um, but the problem is getting jurors to come to court getting jurors to assemble, getting jurors back into a deliberating room. That's the biggest problem um, that COVID has presented to, um, you know, trying cases. In Glen County, to allow for social distancing, prospective jurors who are summoned for duty are told to initially congregate at the Selden Park Recreational Center. It's a big gymnasium about two miles from the courthouse and has been specially designated as a courthouse annex. Hundreds of prospective jurors will be summoned for the murder trial. They'll come in waves to the rec center and then be taken to the courthouse in groups of 20 or so people for group and individual questioning. Before we sign off, I want to update you on Devanya Inman's case. That's from Season 4, Murder Below the Nat Line. If you haven't listened to it, I hope you will. Earlier this summer, I attended a court hearing in North Georgia before Judge Christina Cook-Graham on Inman's latest bid to get a new trial. Inman is serving a life-without-parole sentence for the 1998 murder of Donna Brown, a Taco Bell night manager who was shot and killed in the restaurant's parking lot. Her killer took about $1,700 of the day's receipts. Inman is still being represented for free by a big Atlanta law firm, Troutman Pepper. At the hearing, they won an important ruling. Judge Graham signed an order that says, in essence, she is proceeding under the assumption that Hercules Brown not Devanya Inman, is the actual killer. Of course, years after Inman's trial, DNA from a makeshift mask found in Donna Brown's car matched Hercules Brown. Hercules and Donna were not related. Even so, with that incredibly powerful new evidence, Georgia's court system has refused to grant Inman a new trial. At the hearing, Judge Graham said she would draw what's called an adverse inference against Hercules Brown in assuming he's the actual killer. That's because he refused to leave his prison cell last December and answer questions about why his DNA was found on the mask. By declining, Hercules Brown incriminated himself in Donna Brown's murder, Judge Graham found. The judge is expected to issue a ruling on whether to grant Inman a new trial in the coming months. We'll certainly let you know what happens. As always, thanks so much for listening. We'll have at least one more episode before the trial and then cover the trial after jury selection begins. Please be safe and take care. If you haven't been vaccinated, please, please do so for all of us. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin.
You've been listening to Breakdown, hosted by Bill Rankin, produced by Asia Simone Burns and Bill Rankin, edited by Jennifer Brett, music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin, sound design by Asia Simone Burns. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, and Pete Corson. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous seven seasons of Breakdown. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.